Hello, and welcome to Ibsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Sarah Vishnevak, Associate Professor of Law at the Texas A&M University. My guest today is Stephanie Plamenden-Bear, Associate Professor of Law at Brigham Young University. We'll be discussing her new article, Impoverished IP. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, you know, what's interesting uh, sort of immediately about this article is that it identifies right up front an important succession of ideas about innovation and, uh, and intellectual property. So for a long time, the incentive story of IP, which, uh, which IP scholars are pretty familiar with, has been concerned mostly with economic efficiency in the traditional sense. And to the extent that distributive justice was part of the conversation, uh, it was mostly to point out shortcomings in participation and representation within IP. And now more recently, there seems to be some suggestion that IP might promote distributive justice values, especially when it comes to those who live in poverty. And your paper seems to say not so fast. There are some unstated assumptions there. So first off, how would you summarize the major assumption about creativity that you're trying to challenge in the paper? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll just um, start by telling you a little bit of the motivation um, for the paper, because um, recently there's been some empirical evidence coming out suggesting that people from low-income groups are participating in IP at much lower rates than um, people from higher-income groups. Um, And I am actually very sympathetic to the um, distributive justice theory or the distributive justice strain um, in IP scholarship. But seeing this empirical evidence really started getting me thinking about, you know, what is the relationship between poverty and creativity? What's the relationship between poverty and intellectual property participation? Um, And when I started digging into the psychology literature, it it did kind of lead me down a path that I hadn't expected to go down. Um, and kind of the main finding from the psychology literature that motivates most of the analysis and discussion in the paper is that the conditions of poverty um, actually change uh, cognitive processes. They change the way our brains work, um, the way we think, um, in ways that I think actually make it much harder to engage in creative thought and creative mm-hmm. processes. So um, I, I think that has a lot of implications, um, both for distributive justice theories and for the incentive theories um, of IP. And we can talk about those implications um, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So if I have it uh, correct, then the major assumption about creativity, if the idea is that IP is supposed to empower uh, people and help them sort of, uh, you know, sort of rise out of poverty, then it sounds like the, the whole idea might be uh, internally contradictory if, in fact, the creativity necessary to engage meaningfully in the IP system is itself uh, stifled by, by the conditions of poverty. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, um, a lot of IP and distributive justice scholars kind of see IP as this underused tool for empowering poor populations, right? If we can put more IP in the hands of poor people, IP mm-hmm. is economically valuable, it's socially valuable, right? So this could be a way of um, of helping people in, in um, disadvantaged situations um, mm-hmm. help themselves out of those disadvantaged situations. But... The psychology literature suggests that 
um, it's harder for people living in poverty to engage in creative thinking. So it's harder for them to participate in IP. So in fact, um, using current IP regimes, right, we would expect IP to actually exacerbate existing inequalities because um, people who don't live in poverty are better positioned to uh, to participate in IP than, than people who are currently living in poverty. Okay, so let's let's examine some of those uh, findings from the psychology literature. The the paper uh, begins with some discussion of how poverty affects decision making in general, and then creativity in uh, particular. So, what are some of those uh, those salient findings uh, regarding decision making in general? Yeah, so um, one of, one of the researchers that I um, rely on a lot in this paper is Eldar Shafir. He's a cognitive scientist um, at Princeton, um, and he's studied um, the psychology of poverty extensively. Um, And he's found basically that being poor takes up a lot of cognitive resources um, because you're constantly thinking about, um, you know, financial challenges, instability of income, um, things like this, that that's just a burden on your brain, right? Um, And because um, our brains are kind of limited in the, in the amount of processing they can do at any one time, right? If, if most of your RAM, most of your bandwidth is being taken up with uh, thoughts related to poverty, then you're just going to have less bandwidth available for um, engaging in creative pursuits. So, so that's one kind of line of the literature that, that I talk about. The other strain of literature um, has to do with um, brain development and poverty. Mm-hmm. So there's actually quite a bit of research suggesting that um, when children grow up in poverty, this affects um, brain development trajectories in ways um, that are not so good for some basic cognitive skills like um, creative po- problem solving, um, engagement with language, IQ, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and researchers aren't really sure what the reason for that is. There are, are several potential reasons and hypotheses, including kind of maternal health, um, avail- availability of parents to engage with and teach their children. There could be exposures to toxins um, that are more likely to occur um, when someone is growing up in poverty. Um, but the finding itself is clear that um, for children who grow up in poverty, they, they um, experience um, altered brain development trajectories in ways that um, that we would ultimately expect to be not so good for creativity. Okay, and so that finding is robust across not only decision making generally, but creativity in particular. Yeah, and so I'm extrapolating a little bit when it comes to creativity because um, cognitive scientists have not specifically made that link, right? Mm-hmm. So um, they've talked about things like IQ. They talked about things like um, problem solving, working memory, language ability. Um, But what I argue in the paper is that those are all skills. And, you know, there's research to back this up as well. Those are all skills that uh, contribute to and are necessary for creative thinking, creative problem solving. And so if we're seeing, um, you know, people in poverty are 
unable to engage at the same level in these types of, of processes, then we would also expect that um, they would be less able to kind of have the creative advances that, um, that innovation requires and that IP participation requires. Okay, so let's, uh, let's explore a little bit more the, um, the inferences and, and findings that you're talking about on creativity in particular then. Because in the mm-hmm. paper you, you address um, exploitative versus explorative decision-making on the one hand and um, yeah. habit versus goal-based behaviors on the other. And both of those obviously have a lot of um, uh, salience for creativity of the sort that IP would require. And it may be helpful uh, for our listeners if we talk maybe sort of with specific regard to the kinds of IP, whether it's copyright in one situation or trademark or patent in another, that you had in mind when you were sort of making these uh, these conclusions. Right. So um, should I talk about the, the findings about exploitative and habit versus goal-based decision-making? Would that be helpful? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of dive into two um, lines of study in particular that I think um, make the link between poverty and creative decision-making especially salient, especially clear. And the first one has to do with exploitative versus explorative decision-making. So exploitative decision-making strategies are strategies where we exploit information that we're already familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you're driving to the store, you have already explored different routes to the store, you know that one way is the most efficient, and so you're going to stick with that, right? You're going to keep using that that approach because it works. Mm -hmm. Explorative decision-making is more about Exploring new options, as the name suggests, right? Looking for um, for new approaches, new opportunities, um, things like that. Everyone needs a balance of exploitative and explorative decision making mm-hmm. in their lives to be efficient, right? Um, but what some really interesting uh, recent re- research has found is that um, people living um, Actually, it's not specific um, to poverty, but um, it's people living under high levels of stress. Um, But we also know that poverty is a very stressful experience. Um, But people living under high levels of stress um, tend to over-rely on exploitative versus explorative Mm decision-making strategies. So even if it would be more beneficial... um, more efficient to uh, adopt an explorative decision-making strategy in a particular circumstance. Um, If you're under a lot of stress, and this kind of intuitively makes sense, right, you're going to just stick with what you know, right? Mm -hmm. Do the thing that you're familiar with um, that comes easy to you, um, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So that's fine, right? Mm -hmm. But so let me just make the link um, now to creativity, right? Because creativity kind of by definition requires exploration. Um, You're not going to come up with a new creative advance if you're constantly kind of 
just doing what you've always done in the past, right? If you're exploiting um, previous knowledge. And so um, to the extent that people living in poverty over rely on exploitation versus exploration, I think this reduces um, the potential for creative thinking. Um, do you want to jump in or should I go on with my habit versus goal-based? So with, re with regard to different kinds of IP domains, uh, and, and how they would be implicated by this distinction between mm -hmm. uh, over-reliance on exploitative thinking versus uh, explorative. We could certainly imagine that for things like uh, patent, uh, patentable invention, which requires non-obvious advances over the prior art, or yep. copyright, which requires an original work of authorship um, with respect to some, some creative endeavor, that explorative decision-making would be much better suited for it. Is it, yeah. is it necessarily the case that the same is true, for example, in trademark, though? Um, I wrote this paper with copyright and patent specifically in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that this also applies to trademark, mm -hmm. um, but just thinking about it, um, kind of off the cuff, I would say because the main goal of trademark, right, is to um, kind of protect goodwill that a business has built up um, through use of a mark in commerce, mm -hmm. right? And it's not so much necessarily about rewarding um, creativity in the development of marks, for example, um, that this whole line of reasoning is is definitely less applicable to trademark than it is to, to copyright and patents. Fair enough. Um, now, with particular regard to patent and copyright, um, uh, real quick, because I do want to get into the, the habit versus goal-oriented decisions as well. But um, copyright, of course, has a, uh, an important feature, as you know, that patent law doesn't, which is that independent creation in copyright is a defense. So at least to that extent, one can imagine uh, perhaps that, that uh, doing the same thing, but you know, in, in your own way and through, in, in a way that you're familiar with rather than what people have necessarily seen before might be uh, a way to engage in what is creative for copyright purposes, even if not creative necessarily in, uh, in, in patent context. Is that a fair distinction to draw, do you think? Maybe, but when you think about what the independent invention defense actually is in copyright, mm -hmm. it's that you independently came up with something that someone else had already come up with, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a little bit different from the explorative versus exploitative um, dichotomy because when you're relying on exploitative decision-making strategies, you're actually relying on things that you already know about, right? Not that someone else knows or that someone else came up with, but things that you personally um, already know about, right? And so if you're independently coming up with, with a poem, say, that someone's already written before, um, the assumption is that you don't know about that poem, mm -hmm. right? And so you are still engaging in, in exploration, even if that exploration might lead you down exactly the same path that, that someone else has traveled before. I see. So uh, the, the distinction, the explorative, explorative distinction still doesn't answer the question of whether you would go down that road in the, in the first place. 
Right. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, okay, well then let's uh, let's do turn to habit versus goal based behaviors because that's uh, that's another important strand uh, that I that I picked up in the paper. Yeah. So actually, the kind of the the main point of the habit versus goal based finding mm-hmm. is very similar to that of the exploitative versus explorative decision making finding. Um, so just as we can choose to exploit information or explore new options, we can also choose um, in any circumstance whether we want to rely on habit, mm-hmm. right? Um, routines and processes that are already kind of ingrained in our brains, or whether we want to um, set a new goal to do something different and new, right, and um, take steps to achieve that goal, Mm -hmm. right? And again, both have their place, um, and an appropriate balance um, is required for efficient decision-making. What the findings I talk about here reveal is that um, sleep deprivation, um, which is also empirically linked to poverty, Um, people who are living in poverty um, have much lower sleep quality than than people who are not, um, tends to lead to an over-reliance on habit-based decision-making versus goal-based decision-making. Right. And so, again, to make the link to creativity, what I argue is, um, you know, if if you're just continuing to do what you've always done, right, to follow your routines, follow your habits, that's not necessarily going to lead to creative breakthroughs. Right. Um, If you think about how the creative process happens, usually it requires some kind of motivation. Right. Setting a goal, working towards that goal, whatever it may be to, you know, to paint a picture or write a book or to, um, you know, go into the lab and engage in in some kind of um, experimentation. Right. And so, again, I think um, what these results specifically suggest is that the brains of people who are living in poverty um, adopt certain strategies, right? They make a lot of sense for the circumstances that people in poverty are in, right? Because they're under a lot of stress. They have a lot going on. They are living in crisis mode a lot of the time. And so they have to devote scarce cognitive resources to the to survival, right, and the things that are most important. But in the end, what that what that's going to lead to um, is kind of a trending away from cognitive processes that um, will result in creativity, creative breakthroughs, um, these types of things. Okay, so with with those findings sort of in hand, it seems. Uh, I mean, certainly the the point you made at the outset, which is that proposals to use IP as a a lever in in policy to improve the station of of those in poverty are not necessarily likely to succeed at high rates. But it seems like it's these findings also uh, go a little further and even explain existing rates of of under participation. uh, Yes. Yeah, so I, I told you that the, the project actually was motivated um, by some recent empirical evidence. Specifically, there's a study um, coming out of Raj Chetty's group at Stanford um, where he looks at um, IP participation based on 
based on household income. And he actually finds that children from um, low income, children from high income families are 10 times more likely to go on to um, apply for or get a patent than children from low income families, Mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things I wanted to do with this project was figure out, you know, what's going on. And to be fair, right, there are a lot of things that are probably going on. Um, And, you know, I think we can all kind of easily call to mind things that that might be going on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There might be, um, you know, some bias that that's happening, right? Um, There might be... I'm sorry, um, you mean bias on the part of uh, institutional actors? Yeah, so in terms of um, who is granted IP rights or who is who's denied IP rights, um, there could be social factors, right? Of um, if you're not even familiar with with the IP system, right, right. then you might be less likely to to try to um, participate in that system, um, even on a more fundamental level, right? If you um, don't have access to creative jobs, if you don't have access to educational opportunities mm-hmm. um, that will lead to creative jobs, right? If you're not exposed to other creators and innovators, you might not realize that this is a path that you can take as well, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of social social factors, economic factors um, that explain the results. My modest claim is that I think the psychology findings that I talk about can also help explain the results, right? I think it's another piece of the puzzle. Okay. So from from that uh, sort of empirical set of premises, of course, uh, you, you turn in the paper to the, the major utilitarian idea that uh, that IP is about incentives to innovate, and so these uh, the the folks who are in poverty and would be otherwise willing recipients uh, and, and participants of of the system may be unable even to respond to these incentives. So that seems to tee up two important uh, follow up points. One is that we may be able to change the uh, IP system with with a variety of reforms that make them more responsive to uh, to those who are in poverty. And then at the same time, uh, uh, the, the, I think the larger claim of your paper, the larger normative uh, recommendation of your paper, seems to be that we should address uh, distributive justice values uh, th- more directly rather than sort of through the indirect avenue of IP, and that that may have its own additional benefits. So um, as between the two... Um, Let's. Uh, I want to devote more of the time to you know the sort of larger claim, but but real quick, the uh, the idea that the IP system might be reformed to be more responsive to those who are currently participating, you know, at whatever low level. Uh, what are the ways in which we can reduce barriers to entry and, and these sorts of problems? Yeah. So so other people who have been writing in IP and distributive justice vein have have talked about this. So Peter Lee, for example, has written written quite extensively about how we might, um, for example, reduce financial barriers to entry. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we know that 
um, to successfully prosecute a patent takes a lot of money, right? It takes about, you probably know this better than I do, but what's the number you would put on it? $10,000? Oh, yeah, I'd say about 10 uh, to 15 is probably... Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, within the IP system itself, we can work to reduce those barriers to entry, right? We can provide pro bono representation to um, low-income inventors, um, small inventors, um, things like that. Mm -hmm. But actually, what I argue in the paper is that when it comes to the problem I identify here, which is the the detrimental effects that poverty have on creativity, mm -hmm. um, in fact, nothing that we do to the IP system itself is going to help because the problem I identify is not a problem. I mean, it is, it is a problem eventually of participation in the IP system, but the reason people aren't participating in IP is because they're not creating IP protectable works. Yeah. Right. Um, and so if you're not creating an IP protectable work, Nothing that you can change in the IP system is going to help with that, right? right? Um, and so it's kind of a threshold problem yeah. um, that, you know, we to get people in the system, the first thing we need to do is um, kind of improve conditions um, to make them more favorable to the act of creation, mm -hmm. right? And so that's where, where my main um, policy recommendations um, come in. Okay, so then let's let's uh, sort of talk about those policy recommendations uh, in in the final leg here. So you conclude with a call for policies that more directly address distributive justice, um, and at that point, uh, we'll we'll be left at sort of a crossroads. At that point, IP may not be necessary as a policy lever at all, uh, or IP may be uh, even you know uh, as a system may benefit from the increased participation. Uh, of those who are creating at higher rates than than they otherwise would have been. So, what are some some policies uh, that you have in mind? Right, and so just thinking about you know the sh the strain that poverty puts on people and on kind of the the potential for creativity, the potential for creative uh, processes. Um, you know, the obvious answer in my mind is if we can ease that strain, right, mm -hmm. then um, we can expect, hopefully expect positive spillover effects on, on creativity, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, if we remove the burden of, of poverty, then we've removed, also removed the cognitive burden, right? And now you have a whole group of people who are free, um, in the in the cognitive sense, right, to think more creatively and um, and to get um, and to start participating in the IP system. And so, um, if you think about just kind of traditional um, policy recommendations, traditional distributive justice policy recommendations, mm -hmm. I mean, one that I talk about in in the paper is the idea of a universal basic income, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so. Um, there's a huge literature on universal basic income. I don't get it, go into it in detail, um, but the one uh, one way that it's been presented or proposed is right. We 
give a, a cash disbursement to every citizen to ensure that um, every citizen kind of has a baseline of, of income, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if we, depending on how we, you know, how we calculate that, how, um, if the cash disbursement is enough, right, to lift people out of poverty and to kind of ease these financial burdens and the cognitive burdens, um, then we would expect that maybe some of these people would um, start engaging in, in more creative behaviors, right? Um, another recommendation that I talk about in the article is um, increased access to uh, affordable health services, right? Um, because healthcare um, is expensive, and so that adds to the financial burden of people living um, on, in uh, impoverished circumstances. Mm-hmm. Kind of independently, but relatedly, just worrying about healthcare and worrying about your health also um, creates a cognitive burden, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being in ill health um, is probably not so great for creativity, right? If you're in pain, it's probably uh, much less likely that you'll be able to kind of engage in creative pursuits. And, you know, some of the circling back to some of the studies I, I talked about previously dealing with poverty um, and brain development, um, some people have made that the link between um, altered brain development trajectories and reduced maternal access to health care. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, if the moms of of these children living um, in in poverty have better access to health care, right, that could actually have long-term beneficial effects on the brain development of their children, right, and the children's potential to kind of participate in the the innovative economy and to participate in IP. So that's that's kind of the main idea behind those policy recommendations. Okay. And so then uh, turning beyond uh, incentives uh, to, to reduce that cognitive burden, uh, you also conclude in the paper with some thoughts about how greater participation uh, in, in the IP system uh, could result simply from having more people engaging in creative acts. But at the same time and, and beyond that, um, obviously, Innovation is not, uh, it does not consist entirely of intellectual property oriented activities. Um, there are other uh, policy levers that would also be implicated by this. So what are some, some thoughts you have on the, uh, the non-IP innovation related uh, benefits from, from yeah. making these policy interventions? Yeah, so, I mean, when I, I started going down this path and thinking about, and I mean, my, my main thought about incentives, um, with respect to the findings, um, that, that I discuss here is, you know, look, I, as IP scholars, we talk a lot about incentives and how can we make it, make incentives just right and tweak them just so, right? So they're, they're providing the right balance. Mm-hmm. I think what we fail to recognize is that there are lots of other things going on in people's lives that may affect for good or ill um, their ability and their desire to respond um, to those incentives, mm-hmm. right? Um, and given the discussion we just had, right, about how 
just addressing some distributive justice concerns could have positive spillover effects on innovation, um, that has nothing to do with incentives, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, that opened the door to, you know, we are, we're always talking about promoting innovation in terms of incentives, right? Whatever those incentives may be, whether they're um, IP incentives, whether they're tax incentives, whether they're um, grant incentives, right? Maybe we can start thinking about promoting innovation um, in more creative ways, right? Where there's not this one-to-one relationship between, okay, you've provided me with an incentive to create, and so I'm going to respond and create something, Uh right? And so just to kind of, um, you know, brainstorm and and think about um, different, uh, different potential opportunities, I thought, you know, I was... I was a scientist. I um, grew up in in a regime where you got funding to complete a particular project, right? And that funding kind of acted as an incentive to complete a particular project. What if we provided grants or funding that weren't uh, so closely tied to particular projects, right? What if we said, Okay, you're an you're an established artist, or you're working in a lab in an R1 institution. Mm-hmm. Um, here's some money. Um, have fun, <laughs> right? And you don't have to you don't have to explain what you're going to do. You don't have to come back and prove to us later that you actually did it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can use the money um, in whatever way you see fit. And there's actually some. Um, some real efficiency benefits, I think, to to a system like that because you remove all of the all of the overhead and the administrative costs, right? Of um, having review, having grant reviewers and um, uh, all of this kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, just going down this path where we're thinking beyond incentives, actually. And this will probably want to be one of my next projects. Um, just really open the door for me to think about, you know, there are, there are other ways to promote innovation beyond providing incentives, whatever those incentives might be, right? And I think that um, people, IP scholars and innovation scholars, I think it, it's actually a really rich and unexplored area um, that we should start thinking about what are some of these other ways uh, that we can that we can promote innovation that aren't don't have this kind of one-to-one relationship of incentive for innovation so rather than make the the funds um, sort of dependent on output we i mean it sounds like almost a stochastic we'll just put money out and see who you know people with their own uh, agendas and and uh, removing as you said the the overhead burden of writing a grant and, and channeling your thinking up front be much more uh, explorative, perhaps, and and then we'll just see which which projects lead to success and, and sort of take it from there. Is that the idea? Yeah, and I mean it, that actually syncs up well with some of uh, the other psychology uh, literature that I've written about in in other works and other people have written about as well, finding that you know. The rational actor assumption is that, you know, we respond to these financial incentives. We say, oh, there's there's money available. Therefore, I'm going to um, 
you know, respond to that financial incentive by creating something, mm-hmm. right? Actually, people's incentives for creating are are much more nuanced, much more complex, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think from a from a policy perspective, it makes sense to kind of move away from that strict idea that the only way we're going to get um, people to create or the most efficient way of getting people to create is to provide them with with a, a financial carrot, mm. right? Okay. Um, so then, I mean, the, the main conclusion seems to be that IP has a lot to, to uh, sort of consume from the effect of... <laughs> you know, these, these upstream circumstances, but uh, may not have as much to contribute as we had previously thought, and we should redirect our, our attention upstream. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think IP is an important piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think we also have to think about, you know, A, what might be stopping people from responding to the incentives that IP provides, mm-hmm. right? Uh, impoverished circumstances being the main example I deal with here. And B, you know, A, maybe IP isn't the only way um, to get people engaged in, in the creative process, right? Maybe something as simple as um, providing better access to healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, making sure they have um, a, a minimum income that they can rely on, right? Maybe um, these in some circumstances might be more efficient or at least supplements to the the traditional IP system. Right. Well, it sounds like uh, not only an excellent paper, which I enjoyed very much, but the beginning uh, really of an agenda of research that that you've developed here. So thanks for coming on the podcast and and discussing it with me. Yeah, thanks very much. It was really fun. Thank you.